Hey, everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of September 30th, almost October 2021. I'm Charles Hain, writer at No Film School. I'm here with Kath Tolentino, filmmaker and podcaster. Hello. I'm here with Joe Light, uh, filmmaker and writer. Hi. And I'm here with Jason Hellerman, screenwriter and writer at No Film School. Hello. Hey, we're going to be talking about the big news this week, which is the merger between CAA and ICM. So now the big four is becoming the big three. I'm old enough to remember when it was the big seven. And we're going to be talking more about the IATSE strike, which seems like it's about to happen and how that's going to affect everybody and how and and what and what it's about and why what you can do. And then we have tech news, a 1200 watt LED from Aperture has been released. That's a lot of power out of an LED. It's going to be super useful. And we're going to talk about that and tech news this week on the No Film School podcast. All right. So the biggest story of the week in film is CAA and ICM are merging. And from where I sit over here in New York, it's more like CAA is buying ICM. I mean, it's always a tricky with a merger, like who is actually buying who and whether or not there's ever like a quote unquote merger of equals. But yeah, I mean, I used to, when I first got my first internship in 2001, there were seven agencies like taped to the phone that you needed to know the numbers of. And now if you join an internship, there's really just going to be like three taped to the phone if they still do that that you need to know. And that's going to have big implications for filmmakers. Yeah, I'm it's, sure you guys have takes. It's such a crazy thing. I think, like you said, the general consolidation of Hollywood is something that I don't know we ever could have predicted in general. I mean, I guess we could have the way it's going and, and with the pandemic, but it really just feels like an acceleration of some of the things we've already seen happening. You know, like With the rise of streaming, with people suffering during the pandemic, with all these sort of exterior things, having both of these companies come together. And I think just to follow up on what you're saying, it's a CAA acquiring ICM so that it, it does seem like one gobbling up the other. But Oh, so that's official. That okay, is official, good. yes. So there is like, you know, it's such an interesting time. And then, like you said, so many questions for filmmakers and, and really just so much indicative of the industry that has almost nothing to do with filmmaking, right? It's like a company that wants to go public and um, a sports division and all sorts of other things. So like plenty of things to cover on this one. Are, am I right in sort of assuming that this consolidation of agencies will make it harder for indie filmmakers because we then, if we want to sign on talent, like a more established talent, are only communicating with like fewer and fewer entities who have more and more power? Like, am I, what do you think about this? Is that like a... Is it too yeah, soon J- to tell? <laughs> Jason wrote a really good piece about this on Tuesday about what writers and directors should expect. And I think if you ever worked in Hollywood, you see CAA as this kind of like huge entity that just kind of gobbles everyone up. And I think a lot of people would go to those smaller agencies like um, Verve Paradigm because they would get more attention there. Whereas CAA is like, just the just the huge big boy in town. So I think Jason had some really good points about how how it is such a changing time. Maybe not less opportunities, but 
Yeah, I don't want to go enough. full doom and gloom, although I definitely can. Um, <laughs> you know, indie filmmakers are always going to be faced with the same two hurdles, right? It's like, how do I get my voice heard? And also, how do I get financing to make sure my project happens? You know, so if we take this whole problem from the realm of, let's say, um, a young writer, director trying to break in, yeah, it's going to be frustrating, right? If you need to get talent, let's say you want to book a Jennifer Lawrence for your you know, new spec, yeah, you're going to have to go through CAA, the biggest place in town. You'll have to go through um, the biggest agents, which can be hard, not only to get notice, but to get a phone call return. And if you're also not repped at that agency, um, you're going to have trouble packaging because what they want to do with packaging is keep everything in house. You know, like we want Jennifer Lawrence to only be in CAA directed movies, you know, things like that. So like, those are hurdles that already existed before that certainly will be more difficult. In the grand scheme of things, I think like the minor bright side is that the onset of streaming and the rise of streaming means places like Netflix are making around 60 to 70 movies a year. Uh, and that means places like Apple TV, Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, Peacock, et cetera, et cetera. All of them want to make more to keep up. So they'll be looking for that next, you know, hot indie director, writer, director, um, probably to sign if they think they can make money or at least to take their entity and package. Um, studios have changed in the last five years. Um, basically, they're just like big banks now. You know, it's like uh, you could call it Sony or you could call it Bank of America. Really, the idea behind it is the same thing. Producers are coming with already packaged projects. That means something with a writer, director, and probably one or two actors. And they're going to these studios and saying, can I have money to make this? In the old days, what would happen is you'd go to a studio with a script. The studio would then work to help you get writers, directors, actors together and then decide if they want to do it. They are doing less work now for more money. Um, it's getting pretty interesting. So, you know, all this is to say the hustle hasn't changed, but it, it is so, sort of becoming um, more of an uphill climb in different areas or aspects of your career. Uh, I think what we're probably going to see is a lot of smaller agencies, like Joe just mentioned, the paradigms, the APAs, the verves um, cropping up. Um, we'll also see a rise probably in managers, right? When CAA acquired ICM, um, you have to think that there's going to be some redundancies there, especially in MP lit, that's motion picture lit, and also TV. Those agents don't normally go form new agencies. What happens a lot of the time, especially in, again, the last two years because of the pandemic, is that they leave and go become managers. Well, why do they become managers? Well, they become managers because these agents are used to pushing spec screenplays. Those are screenplays written outside of the system um, and packaging them internally. If they're good at packaging, it means they can go be a manager. They can also produce their client's thing, which an agent can't do, um, you know, and make money on top of that. So there's a lot of different strategies all happening at once. It sort of seems like a cacophony of information. And it really is because nobody is sure, A, how this will go, and B, we're in, I feel like I say it every time in the podcast, the wild west of Hollywood right now. Everything is changing so fast. Um, and there's so many opinions on where things are going. It, it does become harder and harder to track, but more and more interesting, maybe in a <laughs> perverse way. So for me, the bummer in this, and I mean, there's going to be some upsides. The bummer in this is, let's think back to the WGA. It wasn't a full strike, but the WGA, I mean, it was almost a strike. They were like, we're not going to work with agencies anymore because we don't like packaging for a lot of good reasons, right? The WGA was like, Packaging means we end up doing a lot of work for free. It often hurts us when you're doing the packaging and you represent us, and that's a conflict of interest that often leads to us getting less money. And if you remember, the way it broke is the first deal the WGA signed to end packaging was UTA. But UTA's deal had a sunset clause. 
that said, we will do, we'll be the first one to break and say no to packaging, but you have to get one of the other big four to sign. And if none of them sign by this deadline, then we're out of the deal. And who snuck in under the deadline? They got ICM to sign and be the second person to, to say, all right, all right, fine. We're done with packaging. We, we still want to rep writers. We're not going to package. So having ICM in play, first off, as someone willing to deal with the WGA, but also just having more like different voices in the room is helpful. Like if you're a union or a guild, you don't want to be negotiating with 9 million clients because that's really difficult and confusing and hard. But you also don't want to be negotiating with one client because that one person has all the power. Like literally, if CAA bought the other big two, you know, if CAA goes and gets UTA and WME and becomes, you know, C-A-W-M-U-T or whatever, <laughs> the WGA would have no leverage, right? CAA would just, C-A-W-M-U-T would just be like, no, we're going to package. And if you don't want to be with us, you're against us. And by having, I think the ideal number of people they're negotiating against is like three to 10 right? Or even four to 10, five to 10. Like that's a good group for a union or a guild to be working against. And that is one of my worries about this is now we're in a situation where it's much easier, right? Because CAA was not the first to break on this. Like, you know, it, it, uh, WME and CAA, of course, held out the longest on the like, no, we would like to keep packaging, please. And with ICM off the table, like that's another, that was another business that didn't have a huge packaging business and so could be brought to heel by the WGA. And so like, I am bummed about that. It's also like a real indicator of like the way modern business works. Like ICM has been around since the seventies and like was management owned forever. And then in 2019, they took on equity stake from a company called Crestview Partners. And everything about Crestview Partners says like private equity, hedge fund, mystery money. And that always means that they're going to be exploring new business. They're going to either be trying to IPO and get their money back or sell to someone else to get their money back. And that means that like, you know, the people who did that sale in 2019 probably did well when they sold that third to Crestview. But that also puts pressures to make these deals happen. And it's, I don't know. I mean, I'm always, there will be upsides for indie filmmakers. Like as an indie filmmaker, if you get, your film into a big festival and an agent from CAA sees it there and is like, I'm not going to sign you, but I'm going to hip pocket you and let's try and put a project together. More of the people you're going to want to attach to your project are all going to be at CAA because CAA-ICM is now going to be one thing. So there are some perks. There will be perks for individual people for whom this makes certain things easier. But I am bummed in terms of like thinking about future WGA negotiations, having only three people and it's going to be much easier for those three people to stick together and unify than it was for four. I feel like, sorry, I feel like I need a quick refresher on packaging, the current state of packaging, and then how that affects writers in a negative way. So packaging was the process where instead of a studio putting together a project, an agency would put together a project. And so the agency would say, okay, I've got a writer and a director and an actor. Why don't I put them together in a package and take that package to the studio? Which makes sense, right? The problem is, is a lot of these studios then started getting involved in the producing of the project. And when you're involved in a lot of the agencies, I mean, like 
creative artist has its own like investing in production arm. They all sort of have their own like investing in it. And the problem that you run into in that is you end up in a situation where you are not it properly incentivized to represent your writer's interests. So, you know, the story David Simon tells is he's like, I wrote a book and we were going to turn it into a movie. I mean, a TV show, Homicide. And his writer, his agent, both repped him and repped the package. And when you're out there trying to get the package sold, your incentive is, I want to make this package attractive. So I'm going to make the writer's fee as low as possible. I'm going to make maybe even the director's and the actor's fee as low as possible because I want the package to go forward because they take a packaging fee for doing that. And that packaging fee becomes their incentive. So David Simon quite articulately argued on his blog. He's like, no, 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 no. If you were representing me, your incentive should be to get me paid so that you get paid. And if your incentive is to make the package as attractive as possible, one of the strongest ways you can do that is be like, hey, homicide, it's by a Baltimore Sunrider. He's never had anything made. He'll do it for $20 and, and a hill of beans and because they want the packaging fee. So that's what the WGA fought against last summer. Cool. That's super the pro- helpful. Yeah. <laughs> the problem arises now, right? So like all that, all that's happening. Packaging also comes with a ton of free development, right? So in the meantime, they're like, hey, we're getting a director attached. Um, they're not paying that writer to do small, you know, I'd say small in quotation marks, rewrites that the producers might want to be attractive to a director, right? A director might be like, oh, I like this project, but let's add, you know, let's change act one. Let's move some stuff around. You're not getting paid for that. Also, the problem is if you're not getting paid for that, then your agent's going to care less and less, right? Because they're not commissioning any money. Um, so they kind of forget about you, right? So if you go to one of these big places and you are hip-pocketed or even signed, um, you're going to be forgotten about until you have a project ready to be packaged internally, which of course is its scary own thing. And you could be waiting six months on that. You could be waiting over six months. It could also just never happen. You could have a very hot spec that you go out with, but you never get paid for because um, it continued to get passed on or rejected. And like That's the real consequence, I think, to Hollywood's future. And I wrote probably extensively about that in the article Joe mentioned earlier. But you have to hope you know, Hollywood hopes it's a meritocracy. We all know there's so many other things happening. But to become a meritocracy, you need people to be paid long enough to stay so that, you know, for lack of a better term, the cream can rise to the top. But how long can people wait in Hollywood without being paid, right? That's the age-old question. If you don't have rich parents, there's not nepotism involved. If you're literally waiting for your shot, how long you can wait for your shot with no money? And obviously, you know, there's like a certain classism enveloped in that, that that I don't think we have a good answer for. But that's sort of where Hollywood's headed. And, you know, you have these agencies built around servicing the top 1% of their clients, um, which is what's going to be monetarily smart for the CAA ICM package. Then what happens to the other 99% of their clients? How do they get things made? How do they rise in the industry? And we just don't have an answer for that. Again, the Wild West, but the dystopian Wild West, not necessarily the one that's exciting and fun. Well, the answer for me seems to be, and I was really excited about this. I can't believe we're talking so much WGA, but whatever. Like, you know, the WGA just had a big vote a couple of weeks ago about sort of the traditionalist slate of board members led by David Simon for once I was on the other side of politics from Simon, who was like, the WGA is about screenwriters and television writers, and we need a union that only cares about us. And then what was called the solidarity slate with Hamilton Nolan and a whole bunch of other people on it who are like, hey, guys, the WGA has been organizing newsrooms for a while, like Vox and a few others. And they were like, and we should be doing more of that. Like, Everybody's writing for screens. Adam Conover did a great tweet thread about, he was like, hey, my show also has a blog. The same people write for both. Like, these are all the same things. And 
The thing that wasn't hit hard enough by the Solidarity Slate, but I think is an important thing to remember, Solidarity Slate won, by the way, the WGA East is going to do a whole lot more work organizing new media, people who write for podcasts, people who write for blogs, people who write for web series, like WGA East is going to work on organizing them. And the reason that's exciting for me is I think that is the only arena right now that exists as a, here's how you can make money as a writer while you are trying to get scripts writ- written. And like, you know, 12 years ago, Diablo Cody turning from blogger to screenwriter was like big news. But now, like literally, of my like friends who are working screenwriters, like getting shows done, so many of them for the first couple of years were like, oh, I wrote for that blog for a couple of years because I was work from home and it was writing and it was enough to survive and I could spend two hours a day on my screenplay. And now I'm eventually you know, getting my animated show made on Netflix or whatever. And like, that is the path, right? Like that is the only way of like, I'm going to sit in a cafe and make money with my words. I can do that for new media and also work on my screenplays. And so WGA recognizing that is similar to WGA recognizing, you know, there's a big kerfuffle in the late forties over early fifties about whether or not WGA would rep TV writers, which seems ridiculous now. But, you know, one of the arguments was, was like, well, that's the pipeline to becoming a feature writer if you can't just sit around on a, you know, if you're not under contract. And I think it's the same thing now of like, there are totally people who are writing a podcast right now for Pineapple Media or for Gimlet who are going to sell a script next year. It's just going to happen. And like, those should be in the same WGA. Now, I also think that we're going to see change as, it's going to be interesting to see if the big mega CAA with ICM included, is going to be able to pay attention to those talents and nurture those talents or not. I still think the biggest agencies are mostly going to be about the big talent. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Moving on to the other big story. IATSE is about to strike. Almost definitely, IATSE is about to strike. We've talked about this a little bit on the podcast, but let's talk about it a little more because the news continues and it's about to come. And you might have seen a whole bunch of people you follow that maybe never talk about labor rights talking about labor rights. And this is, this is a good time to start to get a handle on what's going on. So IATSE is sort of the over-union for the United States and Canada, sort of covering most film and television workers in some way. You know, Local 600 is the one most of us have probably heard of the most, which is the uh, International Cinematographers Guild. And But, you know, there is so many that are uh, all sorts of different locals within IATSE. IATSE is how any major motion picture gets made. However, as many people have noticed, work hours in entertainment suck. 
you know, we average 70 hour weeks. We average getting off on a Friday day at seven in the morning on a Saturday morning and then being expected <laughs> back at work at 530 in the morning on Monday. It's awful. And for a long, long time, it's always been treated as, well, this is just how you do it. Like, this is just the deal. And honestly, Haskell Wexler was fighting against this 20 years ago. And there wasn't a lot of interests in, like, people supported him, but there wasn't, I think, people weren't ready to strike. I think we are now ready to strike. I think we are at a point where all we want is reasonable rest. Like, can we get full nights of sleep and weekends? That's just all we need. And, you know, the Association of Motion Picture Producers have stopped countering. So they're at an impasse, right? Like, uh, the IATC uh, negotiators and the IMPTP nego- AMPTP negotiators are no longer sort of trying to meet anywhere in the middle. I understand, you know, I understand the the pressure AMPTP is under. They're trying to figure out, like, what will you be able to do? But, like, let's remember that until the 80s, or the 70s, really, like, this is how you shot movies, like, weekends, reasonable nights. Like, this is only the last 40 years of entertainment that has gotten this bad, and it's now time to figure out how to have it good again. And the really exciting thing is how much solidarity we're seeing with above-the-line people, how many people, showrunners and producers, are coming out in support of this, and how public the fight is being in preparation for this. I actually think, I mean, I'm hoping for a last-minute deal. Strikes are never fun, but I don't think a last-minute deal is coming. I think there's the potential of a strike, and we can see the, we will know soon. Maybe even by the time this podcast comes out. It seems like the terms are like, some of the terms that I was reading about today seem sort of even more mild than I thought they would be. Like one of them is they're requesting a 10-hour turnaround for everyone, which feels like just not enough. <laughs> just like, why not a why not a 12-hour turnaround? Why not push it farther? But I get, you know, since last week when we spoke about this and we were sort of wondering out loud about like why some people might be um, less than optimistic about the results of this. I think I've since looked into it a bit more and realized like, okay, well, there's fears about maybe productions moving overseas or there's fears around, there's people in the union who are worried about their rates falling if the days are shorter because they don't get that overtime. But at the same time, it's like, I don't know, 10 hour turnaround just doesn't feel like enough. I wish that I wish that they were pushing harder for things personally. I'm personally not worried about production going overseas because of talent. The number one thing that keeps production where it is is talent doesn't want to travel. Like, you know, Rizzoli and Isles, the show with Angie Harmon, shot in LA. And the reason they shot in LA is Angie Harmon was like, All right, well, you can have me if you shoot in LA. And they were like, We'd like to shoot Detroit. And she's like, Great, you can cast someone else. And they were like, Well, we want Angie Harmon, so we'll stay in LA. Like, and that happens over and over and over again. Like, stars do have the power. Will some production travel? Absolutely some production will travel. You know, that's the nature of the business. It's easier for me to say this in New York, which is like the busiest production market on earth, and it's crazy how much work there is. It's definitely a bigger worry in LA where there's not enough work already. But, you know, for the most part, production is not always dictated by cost savings. There are... There are stars that have the clout to keep things where they are. If you're going to get certain people, you're not going to get them to go to other places, that kind of thing. You mentioned how the above the line people being like talent and writers and showrunners and all those all those people on that side were supportive for that. And I just wondered if y'all think that that's genuine or if they're kind of just jumping on the bandwagon because it's 
it is kind of wild how it's taken so long just for these basic things to be seen as valid requests. I mean, I think it's really complicated. There were a couple of posts, you know, if you're not following IA stories, you should. And there's one really interesting post that someone put up there that was like, hey, I just saw my producer tweet their support of the strike. But like, this is the same producer where I, I made $100 a day working for them for 10 hour days as an assistant and sleeping in my car because I couldn't afford rent. And like, I think there's probably some hypocrisy and virtue signaling. I also think, I mean, maybe I'm just a naive and optimistic person. I think there's the possibility of evolution. Like, I look at how poorly some of the people were paid when I was on early productions. Like, pretty quickly, I got to the point where I was like, oh, I can't pay anybody this. Like, everybody has to get paid properly. And like, yada. And like, I believe in this as a political value. I'm going to make it happen. But I certainly directed shoots that went to 12 or 15 hours. I don't think I ever did like longer than 15 because I like sleep too much. But like, I think it's possible to have gotten suckered into it with an overwhelming message of, well, this is just how it is. Do it. Like, and then partway through to stop and be like, no, wait a minute. This is dumb. This is dumb. I regret having done it this way and I want to do it another way. And I genuinely see from a lot of the support People who are like, oh, th- as it is right now, this is genuinely dumb. Can we all please stop? I'm sure that someone is just a virtue signaling, like, I can't, I, I can't wait to get back to shooting stupid hours person. But for the most part, maybe I'm just optimistic. Maybe I'm just naive. No, it I seems feel you. like a lot of above the line. What? Yeah, a lot of above the line people also probably don't want to be there that long, right? Um, and if the whole industry is signaling for a shift, that means that they then don't also have to keep, you know, trying to make these budgets work and can, you know, hopefully have a little bit of leeway as well in terms of like asking for more money from whoever's investing in it or working with studios to get, you know, to just set the bar higher, right? Yeah, no one wants to be working as long as we do. Just that we all feel like we have to. Yeah, I think the nice thing about this argument happening now and, and as you know, to echo Charles, like um, on IA stories, it's, these are human stories, and it's not—it's no longer just this amorphous, um, lot, you know, for lack of a better term, like this sort of line on a line producer's sheet about what what costs and why they do things. It's these are human beings, right? And, you know, you can hear a story of a car crash on the way home or the people swerving, and if you don't know those people, it's easy to um, cast that aside and be like, oh, that's just one story. That's just one set. It's not my set." But I do think. You know, the nice thing about this movement with social media and hearing all these things uh, is that it, it is harder to ignore. And, and I do think, look, certainly some of it is not genuine, but I do think the vast majority of tweets and things we're seeing are, and I think budgets need to shift accordingly. There's no reason now um, with the way people shoot that, that this shouldn't be, that this should still be an issue. And, and hopefully this is, this is the year we figure it out, right? And if it's not, that's a huge issue and Hollywood will have to stop. You know, I, I don't, I don't think this is the time to, uh, call bluff, especially after they've made people work through a pandemic. You know, it's these stories only get worse and worse. Um, this is a time to put safety first. And I do think with the rise of technology, being on set is getting easier, but it's not necessarily getting safer um, because the longer they can spend on set, uh, the more dangerous it can get. So, you know, hopefully this is uh, a marker toward change. And, you know, I can see things, you know, hopefully headed toward the right, down the right path. I also think that it's becoming worse because some of the technology makes it easier to not have the impact affect you yourself. Like, I'm going to be fully honest. I was working on a job earlier this year that used Qtake, which is like a live streaming tool, which is amazing. So I was sitting in the back of an Uber looking at my phone, 
approving takes on like it was like a product shot like there were no actors to direct or anything i was just like oh tweak the lipstick or whatever this angle or whatever and it's like i didn't have to be on set with everybody i had no idea how long they'd been there i didn't know if they were going to be up on you know like i could show up for the part i needed to show up for from the back of an uber going somewhere else and i think that there is a certain amount of like directors leaving early showing up later like you know it used to be five years ago like the director was always there and producer would like maybe show up a little late maybe leave a little early but needed to be there a lot and now i think there's a delusion of like a a level of like i can and when you're there you see how hard everybody's working you're you're aware of like oh wow we've run a little long let's wrap it and pick this up tomorrow in a way we're like if you're just looking at it in q take you can just be like oh no we need four more of these i need a couple oh let's change it and you don't notice the whole crew like fall over dead. So technology is, I think, changing some of this a little bit. I was going to say, QTake sounds like a great resource. And now I'm like, actually, no, I hear you. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> in this particular instance, I think the crew was pretty happy. I'm going to email them and make sure. QTake in that, I mean, QTake's amazing. QTake is pricey because it's real time. Like every other streaming solution, there's a lag. QTake is zero lag. The production was in Vietnam. And I was like sitting in an Uber on 4G in New York directing takes. It was crazy. It was amazing. No, QTake is fantastic. I'm not going to blame QTake for this, but I am going to say like, because I wasn't there, I could not read the feeling of the crew. And hopefully I wasn't like working them too long, but I guarantee you some people have because of the ability to keep supervising things remotely. Like, oh, I got to go to my kid's rehearsal, but I'll watch some takes from the car while you guys go. Instead of just being like, oh, I got to go to my kid's school play. Let's just rap early. The way they would have 10 years ago, you know? Totally. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, moving on to tech news. The big tech news this week. Aperture, who is a uh, company that makes, they're most famous for their LED lights. They make a lot of fun stuff. They're, you know, one of my favorite recent products from them is a, is a fully Bluetooth RGB Edison bulb replacement, like an A21 bulb replacement. So you can like roll up on set and look at a practical lamp and take it out and put in this like very easy to control link to the rest of your set bulb that plugs into the socket and is full RGB control. So you want to make all your practical lamps warmer, or dimmer, or brighter, or pinker. You can just do all that from one controlled app. Philips Hue does something similar for the home, but these are brighter for motion picture use, more controllable, they're super slick. They have just launched a 1,200-watt LED. So why do indie filmmakers care about a 1,200-watt LED? For better or for worse, LED lights are are very popular with indie filmmakers because they're very power efficient. You get a lot of power output from them without drawing a lot of wall power. So, you know, 
it's hard to make direct comparisons, but like, you know, the goal of a 1200 watt LED is to be as powerful as like a two and a half K HMI. It's probably not as powerful as a two and a half K HMI, but you can't plug a two and a half K HMI into a wall outlet. You can plug a 1200 watt LED into a wall outlet and get some somewhere in between a 1.2 K HMI and a two and a half K HMI. So this is huge. This is like killer. If you're like doing an indie film and you need to do some night exterior scenes, get your hands on a couple of these and you can like set them up at the back of the alley, up on stands, shooting down the street, backlighting your characters and actually, instead of having to rent a Jenny, just like run some wall power into the bar nearby and fire them up. Like it's kind of amazing for indie filmmakers that LEDs are getting quite so powerful. You know, you're going to run into the same drawbacks you always run into with LEDs, which is, you know, the color spectrum is probably nicer than HMI. It's not as nice as pure daylight. But the color spectrum actually has been getting really nice in HMI in LEDs in the last few years. I've moved a lot of my lighting over to LED and been quite happy. So, I mean, these are kind of impressive. They're not going to be as cheap as we want. You know, they're probably going to be like three grand a light. And I think everybody wishes they'd be like a grand a light. But, you know, for a three grand light, that's like a $300 a weekend rental. All of a sudden, being able to do like really indie, low light night exterior shoots is going to be killer fun. 3K is not bad. Totally not bad. All right. And then I guess last this week, we should talk about uh, Jason. Do you want to talk a little bit about this uh, crazy shot from Bonfire of the Vanities? Absolutely. You know what? I feel like it's kind of the summer of Bonfire of the Vanities. <laughs> this is a movie, of course, that came it out expands. decades ago, but. Um, TCM had a really hit podcast called The Plot Thickens, and the first season dealt with Peter Bogdanovich, the director, and the second season was the story of The Devil's Candy. It was a very famous book from the 90s that covered uh, the shooting of Bonfire of the Vanities. It was written by a woman named Julie Solomon, and the season two of The Plot Thickens covered The Devil's Candy. So it was the shooting of The Bonfire of the Vanities. Everyone was sort of talking about that podcast this summer. And then there was a really popular YouTube video recently done by Patrick Willems, who's sort of that fun um, talking head persona on YouTube. If you're a fan of his, I'm a huge fan here. I'm talking about how this one shot from the Bonfire of the Vandies, uh, it's the shot of a Concord landing at sunset, how it sort of is a shot that, you know, maybe is one of the most important of all time in film. <laughs> um, uh, Vilas Zygmunt was the cinematographer on the shoot and uh, Brian De Palma directed the movie. Basically, De Palma had said he would never include a shot of a plane landing in any of his movies uh, because he thought they were all boring. And his second unit director, Eric Schwab, wanted to impress him, um, prove that it was time to get off the second unit, direct some of his own movies. Uh, So, you know, in the Cliff Notes version of the story, um, he decided he'd get a Concorde, he'd shoot it at sunset. Um, They had to rent a Concorde for it. He wanted the Empire State to building to be in the background. Uh, he found out that like at one point during the year, so like one day out of 365 days, this would be available where the, the sun would be cresting right, would be able to shoot it. And they rented a camera, they rented a Concorde, which was uh, whatever. All in all, they spent around $80,000 to get this six second shot. It does appear in the movie. Um, so that's a big deal. But really like the story behind it, I think is, um, will we ever do that again, right? Filmmaking glut. Uh, and big budget dramas for adults don't really exist anymore. You know, the Bonfire of the Vandies cost as much as an Avengers movie. And while it maybe didn't get reviewed as gracefully as <laughs> as they would have liked, and it was a, sort of a disaster behind the scenes, you know, will we ever get back to that old Hollywood style? You know, like we just talked about a three thousand dollar light that indie filmmakers can use that I'm sure people will adapt to. We've 
talked in this podcast probably ad nauseum about how to use an iPhone to shoot things. And filmmaking is changing. It's, you know, but there is this lost art, this art of, you know, probably this unchecked capitalism, which was made fun of in the movie Bonfire of the Vanities, but really was shown in this shot of a Concord landing. And, you know, I, I wonder if we'll ever get back there. And there's, there is some dream. Look, we've all dreamed about working in Hollywood, seeing our name in lights and having that budget to tell any story. And, and I don't know if those budgets are going to be around anymore, especially after everything we've talked about this episode. Uh, you know, so we might have seen the last Concord landing, uh, no pun intended. So what's so funny is my take about this is so different, which is my take is about like technological optimism, which is so many of the things that made that shot hard are not hard anymore. Now, obviously, Concorde no longer flies because after the 2003 accident in Paris, they grounded, they grounded it. And frankly, Concorde should probably have never flown to begin with. It was like a very complicated series of like a tremendous amount of it was never really a sustainable business model, but but I love Concorde anyway. It's like one of the, like, such a beautiful thing. And so, like, I'm not technologically optimistic about air travel, although I actually am. Like, modern planes are way more sophisticated than Concorde. They just don't go as fast. But what's interesting to me about looking at this shot is how hard it was in the 80s to do something that is so much easier now. So, if I want now to plan ahead of time and know exactly where the sun is going to set, any any scout you go on, you have Sunseeker in your phone and you put up Sunseeker and you're like, okay, what day are we shooting? We're here in three months on November 12th. All right, the sun's going to be right there. Oh, I actually want the sun over there. Okay, what day do I need to go to to do that? And like in two seconds, you're like, okay, I need to be here then. Which like required using a special sailing computer in the 80s to figure that out. And you had to like buy time on it. And like, it was much harder. And it's like, it's not much easier. Renting Concorde, very expensive. Knowing the schedule ahead of time of what kind of planes are going to be landing then, like the modern equivalent of this would either be a private plane or like, I don't know, a, uh, an A340 maybe would be fancy enough. Um, it, it certainly wouldn't be Boeing. And you could do your research on the internet to find it, to make it work. Like, So there's all sorts of things that come together now. Like I think about shots I've done that have been very, very hard. And I'm like, I have no idea how you would do this in the 80s. And the fun thing about this shot is looking at it and being like, oh, motherfucker, they did that in the 80s. Whoa, that was complicated. It would be so much easier now. It is a bummer Concord no longer flies. It is not worth watching all of Bonfire of the Vanities to see this shot. Uh, that movie, although fun, is also a mess and really misses the point of the book. But you should totally watch the video about it because it is one of those fascinating shots. We have resources like that that still show up in productions, but they show up on, you know, a different type of movie that is less likely to do a specific shot. Also, this is the end of the pre of the photographic era, right? By the 90s, they would have just said, okay, well, let's go on Turbo Squid and buy a model of Concorde and buy a model of GFK and buy a model of Empire and do this in Nuke. And, you know, I bet people could do this I would not be surprised if someone on YouTube has not done a response video to the $80,000 shot where they're just like, I did the shot in at home in fusion in an hour. So that has also changed. Also, though, like the sun is so huge in this shot. Even if you have a sense of where the sun is going to be, that seems like it must have been some kind of happy accident. How do you plan for something? Well, no, like that? that would have been a thousand millimeter lens. So 
at one point the um at one point the youtuber is like i think it must be a several thousand millimeter lens which like you have to get into really specialty optics like telephoto i mean like uh things for telescopes to get beyond to get to several thousand millimeters i haven't read the american cinematographer on this but i would be willing to get bet good money that it's the thousand millimeter there's a couple of big thousand millimeter lens there was a famous one made for Panavision for Lawrence of Arabia, like that shot in the desert where they see um, Omar Sharif ride in over the horizon, thousand millimeter lens. Claremont camera in LA also had a thousand millimeter lens, which I shot with a bunch. The end of my film, Oblivion, Nebraska, the last shots on the thousand millimeter. And I think the Claremont, there was a 2X extender you could rent for it. The thousand millimeter from Claremont only opened, I think its widest aperture was an 11. <laughs> um, so, you know, you're definitely in a situation where you need a lot of light, which is why it needs to be day exterior. Um, that lens is so heavy, you mount the tripod to the lens and then you hang your camera off the back. It is very, it is a challenge to work with that lens. Operating, like doing any kind of camera move on a thousand millimeter is such a um, challenging adventure. We actually, we were shooting with a kid and we wanted him running towards camera and we went out to this field and we had to put cones like every 10 feet and then someone stood off to the side and watched him run and would like call out what cone he was on. And to see him change in frame, he had to run like 200 feet straight at the camera. And he, and he like barely got bigger in frame. Wow. So this is, I, I would be willing to guess this is the Claremont 1000 millimeter, I would assume. I mean, maybe there's some motion picture 3000 millimeter that I'm not aware of. It's possible. It's probably made by Nikon. But the most likely option is the Claremont or maybe Panavision. But I don't think so. That lens would have been really old by this point. This is cool. Now I know how people get those beautiful shots of the moon looking huge. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in more modern era, there's definitely some super long zooms where you can get those beautiful shots of the moon, like on really long zoom lenses with an extender. Cool. I, I think for me, I just love the romanticism of the whole thing. Like, I think it's a dream for any writer to do like a one line on a page and then someone goes off and they figure it out and they spend thousands of dollars to bring it to life. Like Jason in his movie, they like roll a car for him. And that's just wild to me that that is something that can happen. Like I worked on a, a, a TV pilot where a character was supposed to drive a specific type of car. She was like having a flashback. And so it was literally like maybe two seconds. And we spent a full day shooting that scene with a specific car that was called for in the script. And that's just like wild to me. I love this bu business, but it is, it is whack sometimes. I just can't believe the things that that go into making things come to life. I love it. Yeah. It is beautiful to remember that it's literally one line in the screenplay that this character arrives in New York. And that's it. And yet, like, it's also, I think, the lesson for filmmakers. Uh, I have a friend, I have a DP buddy who likes to say there is no such thing as B-roll. And the point that she's making is that every thought should be thought about in terms of like, what does it tell you? And like, it is, and you know, the reason Brian De Palma hates the plane landing shot is because your typical plane landing shot only tells you character has arrived. Now you watch Kill Bill and the plane shots tell you way more. And you watch Bonfire of the Van Vanities and this plane shot tells you New York City, but it tells you Concord. It tells you luxury. It tells mm -hmm. you like, there's like the, every shot in your film has to do so many jobs. And so like, I haven't read the draft of the script that this was in, but hopefully the screenwriter included something about like, you know, 
this character arrives to New York and what emotional feeling you're supposed to get from it. And like, yeah, every shot should get, every shot in your movie should have this kind of attention and thought. That's how you do good work is this level of polish. Not that Bonfire of Vanities is good work because it's not, but (laughs) there are elements within it that show this tremendous polish that is something to have a lot of respect for. Yeah, what? Well, yeah, you know, just to cap it, it's um, Brian De Palma is just one of our great auteurs, and even though the movie, maybe I think we all agree, or those of us have seen it, doesn't work and and I and doesn't stay true to the book, it is it's an interesting display. Like if you watch that movie on mute, you can hear the story just through the the emotionality of the shots, um, this shot included, and you know, I think like as a filmmaker who will you know, most likely never get $200 million to see his imagination come live on screen. It's fun to pretend you would and, and fun to think about, but also fun to remember that Bonfire of the was like the number one best-selling book in America for like a decade. And, and that's why they gave him that much money. You know, like, like it sold 10 million copies. They were certain it was going to be a hit. It was not, but that shot will live forever. And, uh, you know, the mid-budget adult drama may not, you know, has shifted toward television. Lots of takeaway. And, and certainly, Lots of artistry just to nod your head at it and say, like, the epicness of making imaginations come alive is um, something beautiful that I think we can all embrace. Whether or not we love the movies they occur in, it's, it's just, uh, it's the magic. It's why we're all here, right? Yeah, what a beautiful way to wrap it up. All right, uh, I'm Charles Hain. I'm on the internet at charleshain.com, and y'all know me. I'm Jason Hellerman. You can find me at Jason Hellerman on Twitter. Um, look for a very special No Film School article I am writing, should come out in the next week or two, on all the different kinds of coverage services out there for your screenplays. Um, we purchase coverage from a bunch of popular places all on the same script, and we're going to compare and contrast them. It's going to be really fun. And as far as I know, I don't think anyone's ever done that. Um, so check that out, and I'll probably That's- be back on the podcast to talk about it. That's baller as hell. I am so glad you did that. That rules. Yeah, we're really excited about it. So, uh, you know, that's a secret plug for an article upcoming. Cool. Uh, I'm excited to read that as well. I'm Kath Tolentino, filmmaker. You can find me on Instagram at borderwoman.pictures. You can check out my short film, Parachute, on Short of the Week and Amaletto. I'm Joe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Lightly. I think yesterday, a big article that I wrote about uh, Midnight Mass came out. So please talk to me about that show. I'm obsessed with it. I want I want people to, to send me I've their reactions. I've never even heard of this show. What is this show? Oh my gosh, it's Mike Flanagan's new show on Netflix. So it's a horror limited series. It's so awesome. good. It's so good. All right, that's everybody. So we'll see you guys. Uh, check out the website, nofilmschool.com. Uh, subscribe to the podcast, and we will see you guys all next week. 